The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. We are continuing our series in Mark, and Mark is a, a gospel about the servant Jesus on the mission, a mission of love, a mission of of grace, and so some of the free church pastors that I communicate with were debating online this week whether they ought to stop their series and talk about eschatology and the end times. And uh, yeah, so um, I felt led this morning to take a few moments to talk about my perspective on what's going on um, for what it's worth and. Most importantly, to look at what Jesus had to say. In, in April of 2022, there was a survey uh, from the Pew Research people asking people if they believed that we were in the end times. And uh, one preacher calls it the times of the end. And uh, that may be an appropriate way to say it. But you'll notice that uh, 39%, almost 40% of Americans say that we are in the end times. But unfortunately, 58% said, no, no, there's no catastrophe. There, there's nothing coming. That's just the figment of someone's imagination. But with COVID and other things, you know, there's been a lot of interest. In, and I personally would say, yes, I believe that we're in the times of the end. I, I can't predict the very end, and I'm not going to say that. But I see the signs as are being revealed and uh, particularly around the nation of Israel, which I find very interesting that uh, all is said and done, and all of a sudden it goes back to Israel. All of a sudden this little city called Jerusalem becomes the center of everybody's attention. And, um, and I see in Scripture that the whole world will turn against Israel at some point. But let me just say uh, that what Jesus said is most important. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, that's going to happen. That, that is happening. But see to it that you're not alarmed. Don't go into panic. Don't, don't start running around crazy. Don't quit your job and get up on the roof waiting for Jesus to come. Don't do that. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. And I don't know what the dates are. I don't know what the timetable of God is, but we've seen these signs for some time. Also, the rise of false prophets and false teachers, which, which also is, is a problem in our day. I love the warning here, and I want you to listen to this most carefully in verses 12 and 14. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Lawlessness, chaos, People just not listening to the laws, not paying any attention to it. And we're seeing that increasing. And the warning Jesus gives is very, it really strikes my heart. Don't let your love grow cold. Because there's a part of me that wants to just pack it in, protect my own, and not care about anybody. But he says, don't do that. Don't do that. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So our duty is the same as Acts 1.8. 
be his witnesses, get the gospel out to every creature. That's what we're to be doing. And we're to stand firm in love and faithfulness. And uh, Luke says a similar thing. He records the words of Jesus this way. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, look at it that way. And those are strong words. They're, they're strong, strong words. And then when I turn to James, and I was in James this week in my devotions, and I go, wow, Jesus and James agree. Uh-huh. James says the same thing. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. This is true for the whole age. This has always been our command, to be patient. It is the Greek word macrothumia. It means long temper. Sometimes translated long suffering. Do you need a long temper with some of the circumstances you're facing? <laughs> yeah. Do you need a long temper for some of the people you're dealing with? It relates to both. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? Patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. You see, these words are just so beautiful. They're so blessed. Stand firm. Stay on the foundation. This is not a season to deconstruct your faith. Though many are, and, and for reasons that they choose, we need to stand firm on the foundation of the word of God and the truth of the Lord Jesus. Especially in light of the fact that we're closer today to his coming than we were yesterday. The NIV, or the New Living Translation, translates that, take courage. Take courage. And as to the matter of patience, hmm, have you not read about the patience of our Lord. Peter, in his last letter, writes, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, or beloved ones. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, long-suffering, a long temper, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Not willing that any should perish. So who are we to get angry? Who are we to stop loving? Who are we to jump to another foundation? Oh no. We'll stand firm. I don't know what the timetable is. I know and I believe that the rapture is the next thing in God's plan. Some people don't believe that. That's okay. When we're taken out, they'll realize. <laughs> anyway, 
So the rapture comes, the tribulation period for seven years on the earth. Then the Lord Jesus returns, hallelujah, and he established his reign on the earth for a thousand years. And then the judgment in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, all I can tell you is, and I say this with absolute assurance, we're closer today than we were yesterday. And for that reason, be patient, stand firm, keep loving, keep preaching the gospel. There it is, my five-minute review of how you apply eschatology and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And while you're at it, pray for the peace of Denver. And pray for the peace of Philadelphia, New York City, and Chicago, and Los Angeles, and, and all the cities of the world. Because we're in a season where there's a lot of chaos, a lot of lawlessness. And uh, may God help us to stand firm. So, now to Mark, because we got a long way to go. <laughs> the servant on the mission. We said the theme for this month is controversy. And today's sermon title is simple. Jesus' ministry keeps growing. We, we, we are amazed by this biography, this first biography recorded by Mark that we call the Gospel of Mark. And it is a gospel. It isn't just a biography. And, and Peter's the one who, no doubt, Mark consulted with as he wrote. The servant is on his mission. I, I remind you that in the very first verse, he said the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. We haven't reached the end yet. We got a long way. In fact, eternity will see the impact of the gospel. And um, that's rather interesting. One of the things I've been learning as, as we've been walking through this text is that Jesus is very compassionate. One of our members told me that. He says, I'm just really taken by the pity and mercy of Jesus. And that leper he was merciful with. And those possessed by demons he's merciful with. And those who are suffering grief because of death he's merciful with. And, and again and again, we keep seeing this theme come up. And it costs an illustration, a recent biography about Abraham Lincoln. And this is a story I had never heard before turns out that Lincoln's on a battlefield right near the end of the Civil War and he discovers three little kittens. Aww. And their mother had died and he picks up these little kittens. He's holding them in his arms and, and, he, and he tells the colonel, listen, take care of these kittens. So the colonel defers to the mess hall and tells the, the cook to make sure the kittens are fed and cared for. It's just such an interesting little story. And uh, the, the biographer says so very carefully and, and so beautifully. One of the officers on the scene said it was a curious sight at an army headquarters upon the eve of a great military crisis in the nation's history to see the hand which had affixed the signature to the Emancipation Proclamation and had signed the commissions of all the army men who served in the cause of the Union, tenderly caressing three stray kittens. It was not only curious, the biographer writes, it was revealing. In the midst of carnage, 
flesh from a battlefield strewn with the corpses of those who had, he had ordered into battle. Lincoln was seeking some kind of affirmation of life, some evidence of innocence, some sense of kindness amid the cruelty. The orphaned kittens were a small thing, but they were there, and his focus on their welfare was a passing human moment in a vast drama. How much more the compassion of our Savior? How much more? Because Jesus could actually see into people's hearts. He knew those who were for him and those who were against him. Can you imagine being able to really read minds, <laughs> really see hearts? Do you understand that our Savior suffered every day on the earth when he saw the rebellion and even among his 12 apostles arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to sit on his left, who's going to sit on his right? And yet he still had compassion for us. And even today when he looks upon the earth, he still has compassion. What a blessing. We've seen this. And so we move on in the text, and I'm reading from Mark chapter 3 and verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave this, the name Virginies, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These are the twelve. And in this text, Mark 7, uh, 3, 7, and 19, we see Jesus' ministry expanding in two distinct ways. His popularity is growing and his community is growing. So at verse 7, uh, in some ways we're not really surprised that in spite of all the opposition against them, his popularity is still growing. There's still more and more people who are attracted to him. But he withdraws. He makes a decisive decision to withdraw from the crowds. And he goes to the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And so there's a question in our minds, did he stop going to synagogue? Now, we'll find him in a synagogue later, and, it, and I don't think it's right to say that he stopped going to synagogue. I don't really think that can be concluded from this. But just as he withdrew to pray, uh, and earlier we saw, he, he again withdraws. He gets away from the crowds. And they were large crowds. 
The text makes it very clear. There were multitudes. And they weren't coming because of his teaching. They were becoming because of the miracles. And they wanted miracles. And they wanted to see miracles. And what is really interesting, as uh, I look at verse 8, I wanted to show you a little map of how far, how broad people are coming now to see Jesus. Remember, he's in the north, Galilee. And at first, most of the folks, and it even says in the text, they were from Galilee. But there are also people from Judea. Now, Judea on the map is way south. It's to the southern part of Israel. And uh, you can see it in bold print there. And Jerusalem, of course, which is the capital city. When John the Baptist was attracting crowds, it was mostly Judea and Jerusalem, where they were coming from. But here now, we see people traveling 100 miles on foot to be with Jesus. Very interesting. And Idumea, which originally was the land of Esau. And it's south, even further south. Okay? And then the Transjordan area, which on this map would look like Perea and the Decapolis. It's to the eastern side of the Jordan River. And then, a most astounding truth, Tyre and Sidon. Now, you probably can't see Tyre unless you have really good eyes. It's way up on the top side of this map, but it's on the Mediterranean and Tyre and Sidon are Gentile lands. So most of these lands are Jewish. There may be some Gentiles, but Tyre and Sidon are especially Gentile. And that just is really interesting because, of course, after his birth, there were Gentile kings that came to worship him. And what did the Lord say? And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a life for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And here in Mark, we're seeing that happen even early in his ministry. He is attracting Gentiles as well as Jews. Very interesting. In fact, in general, in the Gospels, Gentiles are portrayed pretty well. Pharisees, scribes, not so well. Even the Sadducees, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Anyway, <laughs> uh, verse 9 is pretty vivid. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. So they're not only just amassing, they're trying to get close to him. And this kaleidoscope of people from all over are coming and they're, they're crowding Jesus in. So he says, get a boat ready. I need a floating pulpit. Um, I may have to escape a little and distance myself from them. And he continues on with this kind of theme as he tells the story because Jesus is healing people. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Once again, Mark uses another word that describes. Now, by the way, when he healed them, there's no follow-up visits. We said this last week, but if you're healed by Jesus, you are healed. All right? You, you are 
healed. If you're a leper, you're cleansed of all leprosy. If you're a cripple, you now walk and run and jump and praise God. And if you can't see, now you see. And, and in some cases, even if you're dead, he raises you from the dead. Now they did die again. <laughs> but it's a rather interesting development. And here's a second word. They're pushing in. They're actually falling upon him. And because it's in the present tense, what it's suggesting is this is a pattern. He keeps seeing it. The crowds are growing and they're pushing in on our Lord Jesus. He's very, very popular. And then he's casting out demons, which we saw earlier. We saw that in the first chapter, one of the early miracles. What I want to tell you that is really significant in this verse is the verbs used to describe the impure spirits and their actions are continuous. They kept looking at him. They kept falling down in front of him. And they kept crying out, you're the son of God. This was the pattern. This is what they were compelled to do. Right? They're seeing, they're inspecting him. The, the verb suggests, man, they're checking him out. You know, people might have been ignoring him, but not the demons. They are watching him closely. They can't keep their eyes off of him. As soon as he enters the room, they're aware the Messiah is here. And they're falling down. Now, they're not worshiping. They're falling down because they're compelled to. And isn't it sad that they know who he is, but they won't submit to him. So they cry out in a loud voice. Word suggests that. You're the son of God. They declare his divinity. And, you know, for those who don't think that phrase means divinity, just check it out. It, it, it's what it means. They're calling him God. And they're the demons. And the, James says, hey, <laughs> you believe God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Yep. And so Jesus says, he gave them strict orders like a commander, like a general would give, not to tell others about him. Don't talk about this. Now, why? Because they don't have the right to reveal who he is. <laughs> they have no right to do that. He's going to reveal himself on his terms. And every action and every healing and every exorcism and every sermon constantly are revealing who he is. And they do not have the right to do that. And so he tells them, shut up. <laughs> That's what he said in chapter 1. And he's still saying it in this chapter as well. They cannot manifest him. They cannot reveal who he is. There is a distinction, it appears, between the exorcisms and the healing of diseases, at least in this context. And it is strange. One commentator makes the point there's a paradox here. They're coming for healing, but they're not really listening to his teaching. They want something from him, but they're not ready to submit to him. Now, there are some that are, but, but it seems like a relatively few number. Now, given the recent polls, Jesus isn't doing so well. Who cares what the polls say? He is the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords. That's who he is. That's who he forever will be. And whether people acknowledge it or not, it doesn't matter. Only it matters to them. 
how they view him. Okay, so he's growing in popularity. Secondly, his community is growing. He went up on a mountainside, is like he did in chapter 1, and he's up there praying. According to Luke, he prayed all night. He prayed all night before he selected the 12. And he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Now, again, this is very significant because in that day, if you wanted to attach yourself to a rabbi, you would ask the rabbi if you could study under him or you could walk with him. And he'd put you through some tests, and then maybe he'd, he'd say, okay, you can follow me. But in the case of Jesus as the sovereign Lord, he selects those 12. He makes them apostles. They are the apostles he will send out to change the world. And it's all by his sovereign power. And the text tells us some very interesting things. They might be with him. They might be with him. They might share life together with him. Do you remember in Acts when they're examining Peter and John, they go, these guys aren't schooled, but we know they, he was, they were with Jesus. May that be said of us. It doesn't matter what your degrees are. You might be dying by degrees. That's what Dr. Wearsby said to me. You've been around seminary too long. You're dying by degrees. I go, yeah. It doesn't matter. Be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. And then he gave them authority to preach, to proclaim the gospel. Same Verb that was used of John the Baptist and used of Jesus is now applied to the apostles. They're going to go out and they're proclaim publicly the good news of the gospel. And they're also going to have the authority to cast out demons, which is given by him to them. They don't do it on their own. They're doing it because he gives them authority to do it. What's really interesting is it doesn't say anything about healing diseases. And yet in their ministry, they would do that as well. So that's his call. And what about his community, the chosen ones? So I found this incredible letter that was dug up by archaeologists. Yeah. And, and here it is. It's a memorandum to Jesus, the son of Joseph, the woodcrafter carpenter shop of Nazareth. And it's from the Jordan Management consultants in Jerusalem. This is amazing. Little tongue in cheek. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in the background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. 
The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, have personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning aptitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. We see a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. Obviously tongue-in-cheek. But when you look at the list, it is pretty amazing who's not on the list. You would have expected, for instance, a Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, to be on the list. But he chooses very common men, and they're by divine choice. Simon Peter, always listed first. He's listed with his nickname, Peter the Rock, his given name, Simon. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, as we said, are called the sons of thunder. In Luke's gospel, he tells about how they're calling down judgment. And this is John, the one who loved Jesus, the, God, the apostle of love, and he's calling down thunder. He also had an ambitious mother, as you know. Andrew was the disciple of John the baptizer, and he introduced Peter to Jesus. Philip, not the deacon in Acts, but a different Philip. Bartholomew, which means the son of Ptolemy. Bar is the uh, reference to that. We don't know anything else about him. Matthew, of course, is Levi, the tax collector that we saw in chapter 2. Thomas is called a twin in other contexts. James, the son of Alphaeus, perhaps because Levi was called the son of Alphaeus. This might be his brother. James. Thaddeus, um, and his nickname means big-hearted. In Luke, he's called Judas. Simon the Zealot, which is a very interesting man, because I've always thought the Zealots, he was a zealot against the Roman government, but that group didn't form until later. So maybe it's a positive. Maybe he's saying he's very zealous. He, you know, maybe again, it's a nickname. If, in general, all these names listed here are, are very personal. It's like Mark is listen to Peter, and Peter's like going over the list, and it's like talking about your teammates, you know? He, he's very personal about it, and maybe including some nicknames. And then you have Judas. <sighs> Iscariot. Ish means son. Cariath is the city from which he came. It is south of Jerusalem. So we don't know all where these guys came from, but he traveled a long way to be in the group. At one season of his life, he must have had great curiosity. He must have been very interested, and he, and he was dedicated. He was committed, and, and he made the journey, and he's now selected as one of the 12, and yet it says he's the one who betrayed Jesus. And it's so sad that that 
was his legacy. He had every opportunity to put his trust in Jesus Christ. And he turned away. It's a sad thing. God chooses the weak things in life. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. <laughs> How about you? You ready to talk about what makes you weak? That God has made you strong? To give him the glory? Paul writes in another context in 1 Corinthians, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Where were you when you trusted Jesus Christ? Who, who were you at that time? Maybe you're here today, and today you're going to trust Christ. Hallelujah. Don't look at your resume. Don't look at your legacy. Don't look in the mirror at your looks. Don't look at your intelligence. Don't look at anything, but look to Jesus. See? That's the beauty of it. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Some were. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ. It's because of him that you are in Christ, if you are today. That's what really matters. That's the glorious thing to give thanks to God for. <laughs> Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Amen. That was true of the apostles, and it is true of us. Let us rejoice that in his call to believe and in our response to trust in him. Every time the gospel goes out, the invitation goes out, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a command from him to believe. And what blessings follow. So, we're not apostles, but we are chosen and we're sent out. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.